HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. As you probably remember, there have been a spate of recent foodborne illnesses, most notably an E. coli outbreak in romaine lettuce and salmonella outbreak in Jenny O's fresh ground turkey, right in time for Thanksgiving. So I thought it would be a good time to delve into the world of food safety and look at how outbreaks like these are managed and hopefully prevented. Joining me on the line to discuss is Jean Halloran, Director of Food Policy Initiatives at Consumer Reports and food safety expert. Jean, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Okay, so I want to start with the most recent news. Um, As I said in the introduction, there was a E. coli uh, outbreak in romaine lettuce and then salmonella outbreak in Genio's fresh ground turkey. Can you, and these happened in pretty quick succession, can you um, give us a little bit more background uh, with regard to what, what happened with each of those? Right, well, it's kind of a, a tough week coming right before Thanksgiving, and actually um, both of these are are still an issue as we go further into the holiday season, um, especially with the turkey. The turkey, the, the recall for the turkey was in ground turkey, but in fact, this particular outbreak strain has apparently been found by the USDA in something like 22 different facilities. Wow. And so it's it's still a risk 
in the turkey that's being sold today. And and okay, so that so what actually happened with uh, with the turkey? I mean, what was kind of like the cause of the outbreak? And then, oh, well, that's the question of the year. <sighs> uh, in in fact, we don't know where this particular outbreak strain came from. Um, the f- the fact is that salmonella is legal in meat in poultry in this country. I don't understand. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, not all not all salmonella is as dangerous as some salmonella. Okay. Not all salmonella will make you sick, but a lot of it makes you sick. And right. there are many dangerous strains. And in some countries, like in Denmark, there's a zero tolerance for any salmonella in meat and poultry. But not here. We allow it. And... and you know, even set percentage limits sometimes as the number of samples you can have that can contain salmonella. So it's it's frequently there in in poultry. Perhaps ten percent of the poultry sold in stores may have salmonella in it, and every so often a really nasty virulent strain comes along that starts making a lot of people really sick. And that's what's happening right now in Turkey. Um, and I think we're going to talk in a little bit later about um, what was different about this uh, strain of salmonella. But for now, um, I just really I'm not really over the fact that salmonella is legal in this country and how something like that could be legal or regulated. Like, I mean, what would a zero tolerance policy for salmonella look like in this country? Well, what it looks like in Denmark is that if they detect it in any facility, you have to empty the facility, uh, slaughter whatever birds may be in it, and clean it out from top to bottom, and then not reopen it until they swab everything and test everything and make sure salmonella isn't there. And that now, doesn't happen. That does not happen in this country. Uh, salmonella is tolerated. And... And in fact, uh, so we have a situation where we have this strain that we know is making people sick, and and USDA went back and checked some of their previous testing and discovered that no less than 22 facilities had this strain in the salmonella that they had already found in their facility. And so... The, what this means is that this particular type of salmonella is somehow or other widespread in the industry. And getting it out would take a very, very big effort. And that's probably not something that would be easy to undertake at the peak season where they're slaughtering turkey and selling turkey to the public. Yeah. Um, what, uh, how does, this might be a silly question, but like how does salmonella happen? Is it just like perfect uh, conditions for this particular bacteria that, that forms? And um, why is it mostly on poultry? Well, it does exist in nature. It, it can be carried uh, by birds, by rodents, um, in a lot of ways, and it can if it gets into a 
uh, a poultry production facility, it it doesn't harm the bird's health. It just harms people later. So you won't even necessarily notice it in a poultry facility unless you're testing for it. Okay. So so and then in, and then um, this just happened in Jenny O's Jenny O's ground chicken, right? So um, that I'm assuming well, the, is oh, go, go the, on. Yeah, the reason the Jenny O ch- turkey ground turkey got recalled was because they had this link that USDA requires before they'll do anything. They had a sick person, and if they then the sick person then describes things that they recently ate, and then if they go to that person's refrigerator and find a package of ground turkey that has a date on it and a facility stamp and shows where it was produced. And then they culture that turkey, and it comes up with the salmonella bacteria that matches the thing that's making the sick person sick. Then they have the smoking gun that they need to order a recall. Okay. Although actually, they don't even order a recall because they don't have authority to order recalls. This is another thing that's really hard to believe, but it's true. Who's who's they? The USDA. The USDA. Um, okay. So-, so so they have to request a recall, but they don't ask for a recall or put out a notice. The best they can do is put out a, an alert to the public, a warning, and. And they usually threaten to do that, and then the company voluntarily does a recall. So, so a recall, uh, you know, the request for a recall only happens when they have this smoking gun of of the package that's directly linked to the producer, and then they generally only require the recall for that day of production or, or something close to it. Wow. Okay. So that seems, and and I, wow, (laughs) it's a lot. Um, that seems like a lot that has to happen to get a recall, um, to actually go through, especially in the the testing process even. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, you need to keep in mind that, um, when, when there is one of these outbreaks, you know, for every, identified sick person, uh, the Center for Disease Control estimates that there's probably 10 who are never identified by the healthcare system. For every one person, yeah. Right, because, you know, I mean, if you get feel a little bit sick, you know, a little sick to your stomach, get over it in a day, you probably don't even call the doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be pretty sick for, um, uh, you know, to have a bad case of this to get around to calling your doctor or for being hospitalized. Right. Wow. So that so so the numbers we have are kind of always just thought to be the tip of the iceberg in an outbreak. Um, you mentioned that there are 22 different facilities um, that could be could still be at risk for having um, salmonella contamination. How is that? I mean, so so basically, what you're saying is like this is still in the food system. There's a high likelihood that this is still in the food system, regardless of whether or not um, it is. You don't eat Jenny O's chicken. That is absolutely true, and that's what's been seriously concerning us. Yeah, um, we asked 
the USDA to reveal the names of those facilities because this might uh, help consumers uh, avoid them. There's on every package of meat or poultry you you buy, there's always a facility code. There's a little number that has a code that tells you the facility where this was processed. So often you can link that to, I mean, if there's, if there's an, a recall or an outbreak, uh, you, you can link it to that number on the package, and, and consumers might be able to use that to, uh, to avoid some of these facilities. But the position of USDA at this point is that salmonella is legal, and it's up to the consumer to protect themselves. Cook the turkey, well done, use a meat thermometer, cook every part of it to 165 degrees, and uh, and you'll be safe. I mean, that seems okay. That seems great, but what about, like, the potential cross-contamination issues? Yes. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that's wrong with that, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, the know, fact that they wouldn't is- disclose the names, that's crazy to me. Yes. But like, and also why, why would that, like, what is the driving force behind that decision? Well, they, they really don't have a good explanation, except that uh, they don't have theoretically enough evidence. In their mind, they don't have enough evidence. It's it's, it's hard. I don't know. They don't, to us, they don't have a good um, excuse for not disclosing those facilities. Right. That would help so, consumers protect themselves. Right. Right. Um, the, well, in terms of, um, of, you know, expecting the consumer to, to take care of all the problems, I mean, not everybody is completely religious about testing every corner of the bird before, before they eat it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but how many times, you know, have you been slicing the turkey and, you know, came to some spot deep in the leg where it was still a little red and bloody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I don't do the slicing of the turkey. I really don't like that job. But, yeah, I'm sure it happens a lot. <laughs> anyway, I've I like outsource that. But, yeah, <laughs> I've certainly seen it. So, um so that so is it's not that unusual, but but any, probably even bigger risk is the risk of cross contamination. You know, you buy a turkey; uh, it's either a fresh turkey or you have to thaw it, and then it starts to drip a little bit. Well, mm-hmm. if the drippings get on something else, particularly, you know, if they get on your hands, if they get on the cutting board, uh, if they get on the counter, they can get onto something else such as, you know, we'd be especially worried about um, uh, salad greens or something else that you eat raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's um, let's talk about, oh, and by the, I'm sorry, just before we kind of jump, because I want to talk about romaine, um, is cross-contamination a bigger issue in terms of the, you know, how people contract these illnesses, or is it mostly through the consumption of undercooked poultry? You know, that's not something that's really been sorted out. They don't, they don't actually know. But uh, there have been some studies done where researchers watched people in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And even people who knew they were being watched t- 
to, to, as to whether they were using proper practices still slipped up on the on the cross contamination procedures you know the washing and the separating and and making sure things didn't drip and all of that yeah in, in a lot of cases in a large percentage of cases um, I just is a bit of a um, separate question but um, I when I was in a culinary school they said never ever wash your chicken like just don't do it the, the possibility of it you know the splashing or dripping coming from it is more likely and it's just like completely unnecessary um, what are your thoughts on that or your recommendations from the organization well consumer reports recommends that as well um, not washing know, it or washing I, it not 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 washing it yeah but but I personally you know feel you have to sometimes use your judgment you know, sometimes you get a turkey and it's really clean inside and it doesn't need anything. You know, other times it may, you know, have bits of stuff on the inside or outside that need to be taken off. And then if you do that, you have to be just really careful to be, you know, kind of not a wild woman splashing <laughs> things around. Yeah. Um, and, okay, so are these issues, are this issue with salmonella just... Um, an issue in poultry that is kind of, I mean, factory farmed or, or mass produced, if you will, or are these issues that a small family farmer also has to contend with? Unfortunately, this is not an issue that's confined to big commercial farms. Because salmonella is kind of everywhere in the environment, it's also present in organic, uh, in organic poultry, and, you know, we do testing at Consumer Reports, and we have not found a difference in levels of disease-causing bacteria uh, between organic and non-organic food. Hmm. What, what we do find a difference in, though, uh, is, is in the antibiotic resistance factors mm-hmm. that uh, antibiotic, uh, that, that chicken... And poultry in general that's labeled raised without antibiotics, mm-hmm. in fact, although there will still be bacteria on it, there's a, a reduced probability that the bacteria will be antibiotic resistant. Okay, so resistant. But the, And what about the likelihood of antibiotics? Um, could the antibiotic use um, prevent, actually prevent salmonella in some of these birds that are being processed? No, that's not the purpose of it, and not, that's not why it's used. Or it's not uh, effective it's, in the use. It, right, yeah. right. Um, it's, it's used for growth promotion and disease prevention, but not these diseases. It's, it's used to prevent other diseases. Yeah. Um, you know, things like um, coccidiosis that can affect the chickens and affect their growth. But the the uh, it doesn't it's given in such low doses that it won't wipe out salmonella in the chicken. It will just select for the hardiest bugs, the ones that will tolerate the antibiotic. So so if you ever then get sick from salmonella in the turkey, mm-hmm. a whole host of antibiotics will not do you any good. 
which is that's, terrifying. That's the concern. That's the concern. Right. And this was this particular strain um, of salmonella that was in the, the turkey that is still looming <laughs> at large, I should say. Yeah. Um, this was uh, resistant, right? It was a um, strain that was um, resistant to... To many antibiotics, what we call a multi-drug resistant um, strain of salmonella. That means it's resistant to three or more classes. Wow. So that's 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 very concerning. We've uh, we, by the way, have along with other organizations, have petitioned the USDA to declare these nasty strains of salmonella to be adulterants to make them illegal. Not all salmonella, just the the ones that make people sick on a regular basis. They have these names like Salmonella Newport and Salmonella Heidelberg. <laughs> um, they they those those strains are known to be more dangerous than others, uh, but so far USDA has rejected our petitions. Again, I don't understand. It, it, could that have something to do with like the current administration, or is that just you know has a reticence to kind of move forward and implement more aggressive food safety standards? Been a, you know like a basically a trend. In the I'm, I'm sorry to say that this has been true uh, for several previous administrations, including the Obama administration, and it you know we. We note that even in democratic administrations, there is often uh, a revolving door between many USDA offices and uh, the meat and poultry industry. And it it seems to be a a situation where the government just will not take um, strong measures. I, why? I mean, I know I keep on asking why, but like there doesn't, I mean, is it a um, capacity issue? Is it like an issue with cost, lobbying or, you know, excessive it'll cost money? It will cost the industry money. The industry money. Yes. You know, if you tell them we have, you know, sal- you know we're classifying salmonella as an adulterant, they will have to make um, new investments in in sanitation and in how they uh, raise the birds, mm-hmm. which will which will cost them money. Now, I don't, you know, given how European countries have done this without going out of business, right? Uh, I I I'm not convinced that this would be the end of of chicken and turkey as we know it in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, there there might be a small price increase that would be passed on to consumers. We don't know, but I think. It would be worth it in terms of uh, of protecting uh, people from serious illness. I mean, and just think of the. I feel like Jenny O's sales might have dipped a little bit after this past yes, recall. Yes. So, I mean, from an optic standpoint, it seems like uh, would there be a lot of pluses to preventing this kind of thing from happening. Um, what yeah, so we've opted for a situation in which you know industry avoids certain investment in in improvements and spending money at a you know predictable regular rate uh, for a situation where we we have these outbreaks and they have you know no impact for a while and then a huge horrible impact impact while they deal with uh, a, a serious outbreak um 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to um, take a really quick commercial break, but when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about the antibiotic resistance um, and in and its effect on um, human health in addition to all of these other um, foodborne illnesses. Stay tuned. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. And we're back on Eating Matters. Um, Okay, so before we went to break, I wanted to ask a question about, um, you know, in thinking about requiring the upgrades um, that would be, you know, included in... um, making changes to our, the food safety of our system, food (laughs) system safety. Um, what would be entailed with the processing plant? So where, where are the processing plants basically? What, I mean, let me, let me just like start over with that question. Mm -hmm. Um, do these big poultry, um, companies own the processing plants or are those separate and thus would like any kind of big up, you know, upgrades be required by the company or by the processing plant? Well, most of our pr- poultry production is vertically integrated, which means that a big company owns the process from the egg to the supermarket, okay. uh, they, you know, from start to finish. And uh, they they often will contract out uh, the the, like the early stages of chicken production. They would they have contract growers, but the, the company, um, you know, if it's Purdue or Genio or whatever, they will specify the breed that you use, um, where you buy the chicks, you know, how the conditions in your barn where you're raising them, the feed that you give them. So they have um, a tremendous amount of control over the production process. Okay. So that they, so it would really be kind of it would fall on the the actual companies themselves to make these changes. The, it, yes, it would be. You know, it's a bit different from beef and pork production, where there are uh, where where we the same. You know, where there's a lot of there, there are some breaks in terms of of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in poultry, there's they're very vertically integrated. You know, the the upside the downside is that they. You know, a few companies have, you know, something approaching monopolistic control. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the upside, if a change needs to be made, they can dictate it and it gets done. Right. Right. And um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the companies that are making that change in just a minute. But I'm wondering if you think that there's been, I mean, in your, in your, with your perspective, if there's been an increase in these foodborne illnesses, Um you know, in the past several years? That's a very good question. We've had, 
an increase in reports of outbreaks in the last few years, but there is a technological change that's occurred, which may mean that we're just getting better information on the outbreaks that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's every year they say there are two million salmonella infections, and wow. yet the reported outbreaks are just a very small percentage of that total number. And the rest, you know, nobody knows exactly what caused, caused them. Um, but we now have um, a new system of genetic fingerprinting, which is very fast and cheap and which has been adopted by everybody who does genetic fingerprinting, mm-hmm. um, uh, by, by the companies, by the government, um, and, you know, by everybody who's doing tracking of, by hospitals and doctors. So it's much easier and, and quicker to be able to get a genetic match between a sick person and, um, and a, a growing, you know, a, a production situation. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, there's still a lot of gaps there. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, if you have a sick person, they have to go to the doctor, and the doctor has to take a stool sample and get that analyzed, and then when he or she gets the result, he has to take it, send it to the state agency, and the state agency has to forward it to CDC before it even gets on CDC's radar. Wow. So, so... A lot has to happen, and a lot of this goes unnoticed. So we don't really know if there's we don't been... We don't really know. But now with this better genetic fingerprinting, uh, we're, we're catching more of them. CDC will get more reports of, of something that, that matches, you know. And then if they start to get 10 or 15 or 20 cases that are all the exact same type of salmonella with the exact same genetic fingerprint, then they go and investigate and see what these people ate and try to figure out where it's coming from. So like 10 people kind of constitute an outbreak and and the need for a- action? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly what CDC's uh, uh, break point is, mm-hmm. but it seems to be around a dozen or so you know, when when they do when they actually report an outbreak investigation, that's usually the the numbers that they have. You know, they won't they never do it for just one or two cases. Um, what are some of the out impacts beyond you know the initial the people in it initially getting sick um, that these uh, outbreaks have? Well, there's always more people uh, getting sick than are showing up in the. In, in the statistics, if that's what you mean. Um, well, I mean, yeah, so additional additional people being affected, but I'm imagining kind of along the, um, uh, you know, along the way, there are other, other people who are adversely affected that we might not think about. Um, for instance, like I'm wondering if with the romaine outbreak, is there going to be a big decrease in romaine consumption for the next couple of months and how that will affect farmers or the amount of kind of waste that was generated by, by the recall? Think, I'm just thinking through like some of the other kind of impacts that could arise from a situation like this. Well, that's uh, absolutely true, and it's it's worth looking at the romaine situation a little bit too. Um, there, uh, the uh, when when we and other consumer organizations last spring 
uh, noticed these two big outbreaks in Romaine, you know, we advise the public to avoid Romaine, which, you know... It, it, like forever uh, or for how long? For, un, well, for the period, it, it would advise up through April or May when they stopped producing in the Yuma, Arizona region. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a simple step that the consumer can take to protect themselves, even though there might be a low probability that they would encounter, um, you know, an infected head of, of, of romaine lettuce. Um, but and but it is true that this can have a disastrous effect on the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, it can. I mean, sales did plummet. I mean, they yeah. crashed. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, and that's that that's unfortunate. Um, but on the third hand, there are some very important preventive measures that the industry, the romaine industry, has been resisting. Like what? And, and is still resisting. Well, the most important is uh, rules on water testing and water quality. Uh, they, uh, uh, FDA developed some new rules under the Food Safety Modernization Act that would require that irrigation water meet the EPA recreational water standard, not the drinking water standard, just the, the swimming water standard. Um, for the water it uses for irrigation and washing, and that there would be uh, a requirement for uh, testing once a month, which is, to me, not even anything like adequate. Mm-hmm. But um, but the industry said that would be too costly and too difficult, and and raised many objections and and contacted their representatives in Congress, and so a year ago. The Food and Drug Administration put that rule on hold. Mm-hmm. So even wow. that rule is not in effect. So currently, so what you're saying is the water being used to grow romaine lettuce specifically is not required to um, meet any level of safety, or you know, that is correct. There is no federal safety standard for it. Oh, that is now. Stunning. Now, there are some industry association standards that they call the Leafy Green Marketing Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the, the, the rules on the contamination that you can tolerate in the water are, are not that stringent. You know, they're not as stringent as the ones that, uh, that the government would impose. And is that what happened with this most recent romaine outbreak? Well, the one that we just went through involving uh, lettuce from California, we don't exactly know what happened there. But the one uh, six months ago, or, or I guess now nine months ago, uh, last spring in Arizona, uh, they, they did a thorough investigation, to their credit, FDA did, mm-hmm. and they discovered the outbreak strain of E. coli, this bad E. coli, E. coli 0157H7, mm-hmm. they found that in an irrigation canal uh, that was used by these farms, uh, and they found it where it flowed by a feedlot, a cattle feedlot. Oh, oh gross. Which is, which is what you would expect. I mean, you know, the, 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 this nasty E. coli... Uh, tends to be generated by uh, cattle in a feedlot and and passed around among them. 
And in this case, this too, the, the genetic fingerprint that they found in this irrigation water, um, where it flowed by the feedlot, matched the one that had made people sick. It was a perfect match. Ugh. Oh, that's so gross. And was that, I mean, in the most recent um, uh, outbreak in, in Romaine, was this across um, oh, like a variety of companies' labels, or was this just this? It, it was, right? It wasn't just. Yes. Yeah, the one last spring, this is the, the Arizona one last spring, um, which is the one that's been tied to this irrigation water. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they came up with, you know, 30 some odd different. Uh, growing locations that seemed to have been affected uh, and, and involved and to have carried the outbreak strain, which points to something like, you know, a, com- you know, a common irrigation water possibly as, mm-hmm. as the source. So, so, you know, here we are. We've, we had an outbreak in uh, California, uh, I, over a year ago that they they had an outbreak that they think was in California that they never traced to the source. Then we had one in Arizona where they traced it to the area but didn't really zero in on exactly where it was coming from. And then they moved their production back to uh, California because, you know, the lettuce production goes back and forth between Arizona and California, depending on the season. Oh. And then and then we got it in California again. So, uh, you know, I have to say, are we going to have another Arab outbreak in Arizona again? Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they have really done everything they should have to to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. They did release an announcement um, about a new labeling requirement, right, for romaine lettuce. Can you tell us about what that is? Yes, and this will help the next time there's an outbreak. It doesn't prevent it, but it will help the response. Um, up, up until this point, you know, you, you buy a bag of romaine or any other kind of leafy green, and it might say product of USA, but it's not going to be more specific. Mm-hmm. But what they uh, what they have decided was that, okay, now they're going to label where it was grown, you know, like Yuma, the Yuma, Arizona region, uh, or some of it's grown in Florida. Um, even some of it comes from Mexico, although the Mexican already has to be uh, labeled. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and uh, uh, it, and that at least, if we have another, God forbid, outbreak, um, consumers will be able. They can say they can pinpoint it to a region. They can say it looks like it's Arizona lettuce that's causing this, and you can then avoid Arizona lettuce, and you don't have to destroy the entire industry. Um, uh, you know, all over the country. Right. Is this just for Romaine, this requirement, the labeling requirement? And is it even a requirement well, or is it voluntary? Yeah, it's, not a, it's not a requirement. It's a voluntary effort. And it's just in Romaine at this point. Okay. Uh, it's something that producers are doing. Seems like a, a lot of voluntary um, guidance and not a lot of regulation in the food safety of our uh, safety of our food supply, which is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> it is. It is. They really, uh, you know, that 
what's what's interesting is that where there are all these voluntary measures, that's where we're seeing problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where things are mandatory, like in fact, uh, this bad E. coli O157 is an adulterant in meat, and you know, and uh, it sometimes shows up in in burger. It's because it grows typically in cattle. Um, and since they made it an adulterant, the the incidence of it showing up has dropped significantly. So you really hardly ever hear about an outbreak. So uh, of that particular bug, hmm. you know. So so this works when they do it, but it's just hard as heck to get one of these through. Seriously. Um, well, where are we on the regulation um, front? Are we, um, you know, are there certain initiatives that are proposed um, that you guys are particular, like lo- regulations that you are lobbying for? Um, you know, what would you like to see happen? And and when do you think that there's a possibility of anything happening? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're, we, uh, we do want this water rule, the water regulations to uh, to be put through for leafy greens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, it's also been held up because they were supposed to, the law told FDA to make um, trace, you know, and, and another thing we want is, is traceability rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but the law told FDA to just do traceability for high-risk foods, and they've spent five years trying to figure out which ones are the high-risk foods. <laughs> like to narrow it down, maybe they should just put a lot, of, put more out than than none. Right, or start with the one that has, you know, had three um, serious outbreaks in the last year. Mm-hmm. You know, surely that's high risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we know we know that. <laughs> right. That's a that's a very good point, um, and what how receptive um, is so? Are you are is this like um, petitions to the USDA or the FDA? You know what what um, governing body would be responsible for making these changes? It seems like both are very involved. Right. Well, um, you know, as you probably know, one of the bizarre things about our food safety system is that FDA is responsible for the safety of fruits, vegetables, and processed food, whereas USDA is responsible for the safety of meat and poultry. Yeah. So so right there, there's room for inconsistency and confusion. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, in the case of the, of the turkey, you know, we would, we would like there to be a, a, for salmonella to be an adulterant and to be prohibited in in turkey, in meat and poultry. In the case of romaine lettuce, it's FDA who has to take action, and we want them to put out these water standards, and we also want them to require traceability schemes so that they can instantly figure out where one of these things comes from. When they have, when they have the, you know, when they have a bag of lettuce, they should be able to know um, instantly, the field that it came from, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and with my, you know, people have been talking about blockchain as the way to do that. Yeah, uh, that uh, and Walmart uh, tried this out uh, with one of its products. I think it was mangoes or papayas, 
and they did it a trace back by conventional means, and it took them a week to figure out the field it came from. And then they had a blockchain trial, and they could figure it out in two seconds. Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. I, you know, I need to learn a little bit more about blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very confusing for me, but I think that's something that I really want to look into with regard to our, it, and it, my, my understanding is that it can be very effective, particularly in the food industry for these reasons that you just laid out. Um, yes. You know, as I've had it finally explained to me, um, it's, it's just a system where everybody who, who handles something, you know, inputs something to a computer and, and it just it stays there, and everybody who has permission to look at that at that chain will see it, you know. And then the next guy enters what they do, you mm-hmm. know. So the, the the guy who's growing it puts in this, you know, this lettuce was made in the you know this field on this day, and then the guy who washes it and bags it says, and we washed it and bagged it, and you maintain a continuous record all the way up to the supermarket who sells it to the to the consumer. Right. Um, well, in thinking and uh, thinking a little bit more about the ability of industry to make changes um, to, you know, improve the safety of our food system, there was a recent development that I want to make sure to mention with Sanderson's, who is the, the third largest poultry supplier. Um, you, they announced that they were going to phase out um the use of antibiotics that are medically important to humans, and you called this decision stunning. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, about this decision for the company that the company made and, and what it really means? Yes, um, that's that's a piece of good news. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, you know we and other organizations have been pushing for meat and poultry producers to eliminate the use of medically important antibiotics in in food production, mm-hmm. you know, to, they use them for uh, growth promotion and disease prevention, and and it's it's really uh, a waste of a of a wonderful resource, and just makes these drugs, you know, the bacteria become immune to them, and then they're in, they're not effective for people when people get sick. So, uh, a, a couple of uh, the other, actually four of the five largest chicken producers had eliminated uh, antibiotics from their production. Um, but Sanderson was a holdout, and they even, you know, had a little Internet ad campaign where they ridiculed the other companies mm-hmm. for doing this and and said that, uh, uh, you know, they were just um, doing it as an ad campaign. And so it was it was quite a pleasant surprise to see them say that they were changing their policy we We also think this may have something to do with the uh, report we we've, we've done a report called Chain Reaction about fast food chains and what their policies are on the kind of meat and poultry they buy and uh, and under public pressure. Most of those have switched to no antibiotics chicken. So like the McDonald's, for instance. Yes, McDonald's has KFC, Chick-fil-A, Burger King's in the process. And that must have just a huge effect on the industry. It does. Uh, The the fast food chains um, are 
consume a very significant percentage of all chicken produced in the United States. Yeah. And so, so although Sanderson may have seen the light on the science side, they may have also seen the light on their on their bottom line. Yeah. And and realized that uh, that they needed to eliminate these medically important antibiotics if, if they were going to keep their markets. What does that mean, medically important? Well, there are some uh, medically important antibiotics are ones that are used on people. Okay. You know, things like tetracycline, penicillin, mm-hmm. um, as if, you know, zithromycin, things that you might have taken yourself. Um, and then including very, you know, last ditch ones like vancomycin. Um, uh, but there are uh, a, a few uh, that really are not used in human medicine at all. Uh, you know, it's a class called ionophores, okay. for example. And so uh, we think it's reasonable to say that the industry can go on using those on animals. Um, there may be some cross-resistance, but uh, it's... Uh, it, the major change that we need is that the ones that are used in people should not be used in animals. And so this would, would this include um, if an animal gets sick? So, I mean, get this decision, they're doing two things, and correct me if this is um, not true, but my understanding was that they're going to, A, phase out the use of antibiotics um, for growth promotion, um, and B, not and- use... And disease prevention. And disease prevention, yep. And then and B, um, not use uh, antibiotics that are, uh, you know, that 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 are administered in humans, um, if that animal gets sick. They no, they will they will continue to use um, even medically important antibiotics if an animal is sick, but that has it has to be a. Uh, under a vet supervision, you know, with a diagnosed illness. Okay. So, so that turns out from, you know, what I've been able to read in the literature is, is a really tiny proportion of all use, maybe 5%. Okay. Um, but so they're still going to be using, they're, they're still going to be using antibiotics, um, just different kind of antibiotics in, with their, uh, in their birds? They will, they will still use it if an animal is diagnosed with an illness, but they won't be using it on a routine daily basis in the feed and water. Okay. Okay, good. So, so one piece of good news <laughs> in wrapping yeah. up, in wrapping up this, um, our conversation about food safety, we're going to have to, um, wrap up in just one minute, but I want to um, ask a question uh, for our consumers who want to know, know more information. Do you have any kind of guidance um, that you would recommend for people in terms of foods they should typically avoid or, um, you know, and, and also where they can go for more information? Well, in general, uh, not so much for the uh, issues that of uh, the salmonella contamination, but in general, organic food is is safer in many respects than uh, than non-organic. You know, it has uh, less antibiotic-resistant bugs. Uh, it has less pesticide residues, and 
and um, and antibiotics may not be used in organic production. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this all has um, uh, safety benefits. Uh, so, so, so that's a, that's one. You know, another uh, is that grass-fed beef also will uh, have is almost never given antibiotics because the animals uh, don't get sick, mm-hmm. um, and they're uh, being not being raised in dense conditions. So. Uh, you know, and there have been some nutritional benefits that some studies have shown for grass-fed beef too. Okay. So, so those are those are all good. Um, and then, in terms of produce, you know, I would say visit your local farmers market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that uh, you know. I'm I'm still finding romaine lettuce uh, in New York. It, it, this may not be much longer, but yeah. Uh, but we still get we still have some leafy greens uh, here in New York at the farmers markets, and then you don't have to worry about these big mass production systems and what they may be doing. So you would say you're you say thumbs up to eating romaine as long as you know where it came from and you know that you that you know the farmer who grew it. So you're buying it at a farmers market. Yes. Okay, great. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. But Jean, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and um, talking about this with us. Well, thank you. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, um, as well as our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.